Hello, everybody, and welcome to Scholars at Play, a podcast dedicated to the critical discussion of games and their place in society and the Academy. Uh, my name is Derek Price, and I am joined today, as always, by Terrell Taylor. What's up? Kyle Romero. Hello. And today, a special guest. She's very special, and she's very a guest, Sabine Ahmed. Greetings. Yeah, greetings, yeah. Earthlings. Um, so, so we're back, and uh, we're going to do something new today, and we're going to talk just a, it's really a diff, really different thing. We never do it. We're going to talk about politics. Change it uh, up. Yeah, just something never really different, like really weird. Uh, but before we sort of get down to it, I want to sort of give Sabine, our special guest, a chance to introduce herself. Sabine, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm very excited to be here, but when I'm... Uh, not guest starring on Scholars at Play. I'm a, I'm a graduate student in the philosophy department. Um, but I do a lot of work in social and political philosophy, and actually I look at contemporary political issues surrounding issues such as refugee rights and um, just war theory and the use of drones. So a lot of my work is adjacent to activism in a lot of ways. So it was very exciting, actually, for me to be here since it's so topical. And I'm coming from a seminar on Derrida, Oh wow! Oh, Which that's going to be yeah. That's going to be. I hope you bring some of that weirdness. That yeah. Oh yeah. That's probably like the most graduate school sentence I've ever heard. It's like, yeah, I just came from a seminar. <laughs> just yeah. came from a seminar on Jacques Derrida. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Thank cool. You. Well, we're really happy that you're joining us today. Um, because, uh, well, not only because, but also because our topic today is like I sort of hinted at politics, but the specific thing we're interested in today is how games relate to, inform, support various forms of political activity or activism. Um, so to answer this question, we're looking at uh, three games from a, uh, it was a game jam called the hashtag, I think it was really called hashtag resist jam. Yeah. Um, and we're also reading two different texts. So uh, the games we're going we're gonna to talk about today are If Not Now, When, um, another game called Pivotal, and another game called Wake Up. Now, Maybe do you just want to explain what a game jam is? Really yeah, quick? absolutely. Yeah. So a game jam, it can be a thing in a physical place, um, so a bunch of people get together over a weekend and there's a topic or a theme or just like a game element. And it's all about creating a game with a couple of people that you make a team all like spontaneously and you all just sort of come together in this one weekend to make a game. Um, the, the, uh, resist jam was a sort of online game jam that occurred over a week. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about the specifics of it, but basically that's the idea is that these games are produced in a very short amount of time and they so sort of do something very specific, very quickly, uh, and they sort of get in, get out, make their point, and 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 they're often prototypes for longer projects. But um, they're really cool because it allows you to explore like one specific idea, one mechanic, one sort of thing that you want to say really quickly, which can be really valuable, especially when with the topic of sort of trying to have games engage with contemporary political stuff. You know, you don't have time for a two-year development um, thing. You got to get it out there quick, and and that's uh, that's why we're taking a look at, at some of these uh, game jam games. So uh, we're taking a look at those three games, and there'll be more details about the creators and links to the games in the show notes because there's, like, many people involved with all of those projects, and I want to give them credit. Um, we're, also, we're also looking at Chapter 1 of Ian Bogost's book, Persuasive Games. Bogost so, making the reappearance yeah, on our podcast. Almost mm -hmm. Boo Ghost. Friend of the pod. Boo, come on. <clears throat> boo Ghost, like that. a spooky ghost. Okay. Who's Friend it's of the podcast. Haunting this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> This is very topical. I was actually saving that one the for later. Specters of Bogus. Yeah. A book written by scholars at play. <laughs> influenced by Jacques Derrida. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> Translated by Sabine Ahmed. Yeah. Ha hashtag, well, from in English. 
into it is something that makes sense into in, broken English <laughs> into the original French. Uh, oh, hmm. That's a uh, that's like chronologically Trans- impossible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what, we were it's talking about Aristotle. Beginning, middle, end doesn't have to be in the same order. Mm, we're yeah. creating fiction. This is fiction. This is fiction. Too. Okay, this okay. is fiction. This is okay. Kids. <laughs> <laughs> we're also we're also going to talk about. Um, a piece that was in The Baffler in June 2017 called All Works Up and Nowhere to Go by Amber Ali Frost. Um, and yeah, we're going to, I'll describe these things a little bit more in depth as we get closer to them and uh, sort of what we want to do with them. But I wanted to start with a little bit of a primer sort of contextualization about if we, if we want to talk about games and politics, let's try and take the pulse of like what contemporary Games are, are, are like, what, what are the politics sort of in them? Like, what is a, what, it, like, can we sort of see what some, some big trends are? And what are the politics around games? So, um, the last five years have had a very specific kind of political bent to them. And I have two examples that I want to talk about. And uh, one of them will be familiar to people who are really inside the gaming sphere and care about gaming journalism and news and all of the minutiae. And also some people beyond that as well. And that's Gamergate. Um, so Gamergate is this, um, well, it started, so it, it didn't, it didn't really, wasn't a movement or even a thing, uh, but it did, there was the, the sort of seeds, uh, were there in 2013 when Zoe Quinn, uh, she's a, a game developer who released a twine game, uh, called Depression Quest, uh, and as I've written in my notes, which a bunch of regressive nerds on the internet hate, uh, <laughs> which I think that's just, that's, that's just a Derek true. Price quote. Yeah, you can September quote September 19th, 2017. Uh, but please don't like type it out and like put hashtag GG next to it. That's really bad. Um, <laughs> so basically this, this game comes out and nerds don't like it because it's not a shooter. Uh, and so these flames. A certain type of nerd. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. also a nerd. Certain, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, well, we're grad students. We got a podcast on games. <laughs> I think we are trying to do work on this idea of yeah. collective nerd, if you yeah. know. But you it's know. a silly concept. Nerd in a larger context. Like nerds, that, yeah. a pl- there are a plurality of nerds. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> uh, certain kinds of nerds. Just people. People. Certain people. Certain kinds of people, no? Reactionaries. No. Okay, reactionaries. <laughs> All right, good, cool, better. Uh, certain people, so the flames were sort of stoked by uh, this blog post by a former partner of Quinn's who alleged a lot of things about her and her sexual activity and things that she had exchanged for favorable reviews of a free game. Um, a lot of this stuff was never corroborated, and it was just sort of taken as truth uh, mm-hmm. by certain people on the internet. And uh, basically, 2014, there's this uh, Breitbart article that popularizes the term Gamergate, and it becomes a hashtag, and it really kind of calcifies into a movement. And by 2014, 2015, it, it's like obvious that this isn't just a one-time thing. This is now going to be a sort of organized group of people who sort of organize around message boards and and uh, forums and all sorts of stuff and, and use Twitter to basically pretend like they're – I mean the, the calling, the, the rallying cry is ethics in games journalism. And the reality is harassing minorities on the internet. So yeah. if you're a woman, if you're a queer person, if you're a person of color, trans person, anyone who's not like a cishet white person, uh, they are harassing you online, sending you death threats, like doxing you. And doxing is like releasing your personal information on the internet for everyone to see your address, your, your personal uh, you know, security number, all that kind of crazy shit. Um, so this is like from 2013, 2015, even 2016, I'm not going to pretend like it's even gone. I mean, it's less fiery than it used to be, but, um, you know, this is the reality of politics around games in that, in, in the most, in the last five years, basically. So one note to add in quickly about Gamergate activity on that question. Um, 
I think none of us in this room would probably believe that you can make a line between what some might call discursive forms of violence and more objective forms of violence. I mean, you know, the old sticks and stones could break my bones, words can never hurt me. I don't know if any of us here would probably buy into that. Mm -hmm. But in case it matters, if you really want to think about the connection between, you know, saying really disgusting and disturbing things on Twitter and what happens in real life. Uh, Anita Sarkeesian, I think, you know, mm-hmm. someone who does a lot of sort of work with feminist frequency and you know, thinking about games criticism from a feminist perspective, was set to give a talk, um, and I forget the exact university, but had to cancel it because right. someone had set a very real threat using language uh, from a much earlier and more historical threat um, in the same area uh, to come in and, and basically perform a very nasty shooting. Yeah. So that, you know, a tweet and the line between that, you know, someone saying that you want to do nasty, disgusting things to someone and that sort of real violence that happens in the world that might inspire or inform that tweet, it, it can be hard from a very subjective level to discern those two things. Right. Yeah. And I think the, the important thing about Gamergate to me is, like you guys were saying, it was this kind of moment, I feel, of like cultural resonance where like the kind of growing popularity of games, the growing acceptance of games among most generations, the different kinds of games that are available for people kind of collided with politics in a very spectacular and popularized fashion. Um, and that was, I mean, you know, I think you can draw pretty important through lines to 2017 from, I mean, you mentioned Absolutely. like Breitbart was the vehicle to like popularize this regressive um white supremacist like response to like the growing number still very much a minority but the growing number of non cishet white people um men uh in gaming and so mm-hmm. that was a kind of response to that but i think it's important to recognize too that this has been a kind of this is there have been through lines longer than just past you know 2013 we talked about an article uh, in our i believe our third episode on civ 5 um four fourth episode fourth, fifth I wasn't Shit. in the third episode. Four, it was four, I'm so. sorry. <laughs> Whichever episode I wasn't in, you just never listen to that one. No, uh, <laughs> uh, um, but we talked about a, a guy named Kevin Shute who wrote an article where he argues that like the institutions that make video games are, are thoroughly infused at the politics of who's working there, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, even if they are people who with like, le- like, you know, generally liberal approaches to whatever, if you're having only white men make certain game, make all popular games in the United States, like the gaming as a culture is going to reflect the kind of ideas and ideologies of both the creators and the consumers. And that's a feedback loop that's going to make consumers think, okay, well, what does a game, video game consumer look like? It's me. I'm a white guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's a feedback loop there. Yeah, so this is just, there's, there's some bigger through lines to think of, yeah. but I think Gamergate was this really important encapsulation of all those kind of threads like exploding together and becoming relevant I mean, to the point where like, like my parents were like, yeah, what's this Gamergate thing? And like, yeah. they've never interacted with right. games in their life, you know? And so it, it got to a kind of cultural resonance that even people who weren't even interested in gaming culture, if that's a thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, were aware of it. Yeah. yeah. But it was also like a microcosm of general society, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it's all, um, it's all a reflection. It's all mutually reinforcing, right? Mm-hmm. So even, you know, in philosophy, we, we talk about this whole view from nowhere idea, right? That that you can come in totally objective and without any sort of subjective bias. And I think that was the idea that a lot of people had about video games, that mm-hmm. it was this kind of view from nowhere sort of creation and they emerge and they're objective in, their, um, in, in the sort of issues that they deal with. But really, I mean, as in philosophy, no one's coming from a view from yeah. nowhere, right? There's always a, there's a baseline view, and Gamergate was a good way to expose precisely that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, actually, 
this is a very hostile environment for certain sorts of people. And for those people, it wasn't shocking, right? It was just mm-hmm. it was just a making visible or yeah. making public to in, like a much broader range yeah. of people who just right. could who had the ability to ignore it before. Yeah, right? yeah absolutely. Right. There's a um a really good series of videos, um, and I can't remember the name of the person who made them together, but I'll maybe we can put a link to them in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, and it sort of follows this interesting anecdote to explain that, while I think one of the things that became very complicated about Gamergate was there's a lot of sort of connections to things like Stormfront and various white supremacist groups and other types of hate groups. And that kind of became a a weird way that sort of the discourse around it began to cycle and circulate Mm. Um, because everyone would say, well, this is a manifestation of these particular things. But then there'd be members of the group would say, well, no, I don't do this, so on and so forth. And it's important to think that while not every single person in Gamergate was necessarily also a member of Stormfront, also um, a part of various other hate organizations or subscribed to very violent ideologies, there is a weird way in which a kind of quasi-neutral, yeah. maybe sort of view from nowhere uh, baseline, if you will, put them in a kind of susceptible place such that a kind of guilt by association was a very real and tangible thing. That moved yeah. that movement. I'll try and make sure that there's a playlist linked to that. Yeah. Or even the idea that silence is complicity, right? You hear that a lot, especially nowadays with, yeah. with the, you know, with actual people coming out in the streets and there's this need to kind of prove that you're politically active, right? Um, because not speaking up is is aligning yourself, right, with the, with the oppressor, so to mm-hmm. speak. So I think that was an uncomfortable moment for a lot of gamers, yeah. too, who weren't actively out there promoting these sorts of ideologies or um, power hierarchies and asymmetries mm-hmm. in gaming, but yeah. realizing that they're caught up in the system too. Yeah, yeah for I sure. think the big point just being that like politics infuses everything, yeah. including games, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it both reflects it and cultivates it, mm-hmm. and there's like a kind of symbiotic relationship, and that's why we get to talk about it on exactly. a podcast. For- <laughs> right, and, and I only bring it up, yeah, again, this all of this – like retweet all of this stuff. Um, uh, <laughs> still that from Marianne. Check us on Twitter. Shout out to Marianne. Also, um, we, we want advertisers. Yeah. <laughs> You're for Blue just, Apron. Just like throw that Blue in. Blue Apron. DM us. Blue Apron. Squarespace. Yeah, I've been moving, moving it. I've been moving it earlier and earlier every episode. So yeah. if they're only listening to parts that they'll hear. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's just good to like bring this up. Like totally culture and like broader issues are, are like you just said, Kyle, exactly. They're sort of permeating and sort of Games culture is, you know, sort of creating some of this and reflecting it back into culture. But it, like, if we want to talk about like how games influence culture and or can shape political activity, then it's definitely like important to like just make sure we are being real about like what yeah. what like because right now games from 2013 there was a strong political sort of mm-hmm. movement that grew up around games and it was this sort of hard right regressive kind of shitty one. Yeah. So. Anyway, uh, so that was <laughs> – I think I think there's a lot more to say about that issue. We didn't touch everything, uh, and we probably will circle back to these kinds of things well, in later those episodes. Those were current ghosts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They always come back. Um, the other thing I wanted to quick mention is um, – so that was we, thinking about politics around games. And then another thing which deserves its own episode, uh, thinking about politics in games – is Bioshock Infinite, um, and a contentious, a contentious game amongst us with a lot of different opinions about whether whether or not it's a beautiful yeah. game. Drell whether or not I just had some conflict. Whether or not it plays recording. well, like I want to, I want to bracket that for now. Yeah. Uh, and just focus really on like what what kind of politics does it mobilize, both in, like in that sort of representational, ludic kind of play level, and 
plenty, many people have written really excellent stuff about how the game relies on, like, fundamentally relies on, like, white, white supremacist, sort of sexist, uh, what I'm, what I think is very appropriate right now to call both sides politics. Um, so for those of you who don't know the game Bioshock Infinite, uh, but the premise of the whole game is you live in this floating religion-based racist city in the sky called Columbia. Uh, and it's your, you play as Booker DeWitt and you run around with Elizabeth Comstock, who is the daughter of the big bad racist guy, Father Comstock. And, um... Basically, the premise of the game is, well, there's, the story is very much a mess. So it's kind of hard to sum it up quickly. I would say it's complicated. Yeah, you could say it's complicated. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Maybe if you're a dummy, it's a mess. (laughs) (laughs) But like to, to, to like stay focused on like what we're trying to hit at is that like, uh, you're basically running around trying to undo this bad world. But um, there are some problems with that because uh, basically, I mean, to to sum the problems up very quickly, the, the people of color in the game pretty much only exist to move the plot forward. They're never really complex or complicated people. Um, the sort of oppressed working classes, they're called the Vox Populi, mm-hmm. um, are basically just, at, at a certain point, they're portrayed as bad as their oppressors. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then at, at the sort of like gender level, uh, your uh, quote unquote, I don't even know, I'm not, not going to say sidekick, but like Elizabeth Comstock, who travels around with you, acts as a sidekick and just gives you She's supplies. She helps right, you. Yeah. Yep. yeah, she just gets you things. And she, she exists to move, again, to move the plot forward, not to sort of be the center of attention or to be a nuanced character or to have to have any... I mean, she has impact on the story for sure. It's it's definitely more a little bit more of a debate about whether or not she's a quote quote unquote um, character with agency or not. But um, the, the the point is like I think I think most relevant maybe for us is that at one point in the game, and I guess this is a slight spoiler warning, so just throwing that out here. Um, this game's kind of old. Uh, Elizabeth has this ability to sort of open up alternate timelines and you get a glimpse into an alternate timeline. So in the regular timeline, whatever that really means in this multi-universe game, um, you basically the Vox Populi can't rebel and they don't have guns or something like that. In this alternate timeline, Elizabeth opens up a rift where the Vox Populi did get weapons and they're just running around murdering people kind of senselessly and their leader uh, who's a, a woman of color. I think her name is Daisy Fitzroy. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the leader of the Vox. And she just sort of like tries to kill Comstock's kid or something like that, or mm-hmm. some young boy. Like Tries to kill the um, children of, I think, of a noble family and says they will grow up to be sort of just as violent as the others. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so this, this leader of the Vox Populi is basically just portrayed as like this demonic, violent, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all of the portraiture, uh, caricatures of, of, of people of color that, y- that you come to expect from sort of media that doesn't, like, think about its use of race and class yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think we need a whole episode on this. We that totally we go do. down this rabbit hole. The and point I, being that, like, yeah. there's a politics in the games as well and Bingo. that the playing of the game can reinforce, create, destroy within the player. Right. right, exactly. And 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 also just as like a taking the temperature of like what is politics? Like where do games fall on the political spectrum, especially when we have a president that is saying both sides are at fault in something like Charlottesville. Um the both sides politics of BioShock Infinite resonates with that in a really it it resonates with it, it quite strongly. I mean, it's literally the same argument. Mm-hmm. Um so I I think it's before we do what we're about to do, which is the exciting thing, which we're like excited to do and talk about how games 
can sort of resist these these regressive tendencies and how how people are making really interesting games with very different kinds of politics. It's important to contextualize that with like the reality of what what it is on the ground. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that was basically it. And so let's go to our happy place. Let's go to our happy place. Tyranny. I think we've we've done we've done our we've done our due diligence at this point. And so uh, basically, our our sort of question for the for the for this for this podcast and what we want to sort of look at is see how how these sort of small indie sort of game jam games, they're not even really indie games because they're like not even like professionally produced for profit most of the time. Um, how can they resist these regressive tendencies and how can they sort of engage with actual political activism reaching outside of the gaming sphere mm-hmm. and sort of interceding in some way in, in, in the way people think about politics and the way people act politically in the world. Um, so let's get right into our discussion uh, we're going to start with the Bogos piece, and uh, I think this is going to sort of help us understand how games uh, make arguments uh, through what, what Bogos calls procedural rhetoric, and this is um, his idea of persuasive games. Uh, then we're going to talk about the Game Jam games and sort of think, try to think about what arguments might these games be advancing, and then we're going to take, uh, at the end, we're going to take a look at Frost's piece and consider basically, like, what is the role of, like, art or media objects in political activity and... Do we agree with Frost that, like, you've got to just organize and strike? Is that, like, the single mm-hmm. golden ideal of what political activity means? Or are there other forms of resistance that we want to actually salvage and find valuable as well? So uh, let's go right to Bogost. And this is a this is a very long book of Bogost. I think it's his second book or something like that. Um it's really where he introduces a lot of stuff that really honestly was very, like, moved the field of game studies forward in a lot of interesting ways, especially with this idea of uh, procedural rhetoric. So when I say that phrase, it probably sounds really weird and ununderstand, like, totally opaque. Um, so Bogost is pretty good, usually, about giving a very specific definition of what he's doing. And so I've got a quote here from, uh, I think this is actually from the... Um, the preface. But uh, basically he says, procedural rhetoric is the art of persuasion through rule-based representation and interactions rather than the spoken word, writing images, or moving pictures. Um, And so Bogus basically just wants to make the case in this book that we can use procedural rhetoric to sort of make arguments about the world. We can use games to understand the world. And games make arguments already. And we can use procedural rhetoric to understand the, the arguments that games are making. So I think one of the first interesting things to, to just open it up for discussion is the first half of this phrase of procedural rhetoric, which is procedure. Um, how did you guys understand that term sort of procedure? And like, what did that sort of unlock for you? Or how did you feel he he, he went about defining that and using it? It seemed to me like for him, it was much more tied to like um, computation, you know? And so the yeah. kind of separation of what he's doing versus like... Um, I guess, like, you know, the study of the spoken word, visu- you know, of visuality. And so that's saying that the introduction of, like, the digital world of, like, computation and understanding the digital world of gaming, uh, we need a kind of new way to, to, I guess, analyze it or to understand yeah. how it can do work for us and that this is a solution. Bogus never made – well – he may do this. I didn't read every page, but he doesn't use the language of like talking about form or like medium specificity. I think he avoids the medium specificity thing on purpose. But I think it's not so bad to think about as like what what might the form of games be doing in terms of creating meaning and shaping our thoughts. I think that's a way to think about it. 
Um, I, I have another quote for this. I've prepped this fairly <laughs> extensively because I wanted to get it right. Um, procedurality or the idea of procedure for Bogost is really all-encompassing. It goes way, it goes way beyond games. Um, he, he expands the, comp- uh, the, the, the concept well, well beyond games. And um, this is on page two to three, uh, if you're following along at home. Uh, <laughs> Everyone is. Of course. Everyone are. listening of course has. They are. And they always have the game out while we're playing time, and be yeah. like, wow, that was a very insightful yep. comment just at the right time. We should assume that everyone is reading. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so procedurality refers to a way of creating, explaining, or understanding processes. And processes define the way things work, the methods, techniques, and logics that drive the operation of systems from mechanical systems like engines to organizational systems like high schools to conceptual systems like religious faith. So procedure's really expansive. What do you, how do you guys feel about this, this really expansive definition of procedure? To me, to a certain degree, it gets back to something that another theorist we read earlier on, I think this might have been the same time we read the should piece, uh, for civilization, Alexander Galloway says, which is games are fundamentally about doing things, yeah. right? Um, and part of what procedure is, is it makes us kind of sit down and force the fact that like doing things isn't just like stuff, go out in the world and do whatever you want. I mean, you know, people often describe things like Grand Theft Auto or the Skyrim series as games where you go do whatever you want. It's like, well, no, there's like a set of procedures that you're interacting with. Interactivity is a thing that Bogus and many others hate, by the way. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> your role in messing with or engaging those procedures and those systems that perform those procedures is potentially the place where the game begins. And that's the kind of, I think that's kind of the focal point to a certain degree. Yeah. Yeah. So, so procedure, I think, like you said, Terrell, it's, it's this sort of the, like the way, but I mean, Bogus defines it very broadly. It's the way by which we do things. It's like, it, it seems to be everything. He gives this anecdote in the book about to give you, to sort of illustrate how procedure works Imagine you're returning something to an electronics store and you are past the due date of like when it's like the return date. And you go and like when you're in person, you can go up to the return desk and say, hey, come on, I bought, I buy so many things here and like this is bullshit. This was broken. I didn't open it until yesterday and I didn't even realize it was broken. And you can get them to sort of give you a refund. And where Bogus wants to turn our attention of thinking, oh, cool, you broke you broke their rules. What they've actually, what Bogus' argument is you've just engaged in a different procedure. You've engaged in a different process. And that process is keeping the customer happy. Not abiding by store mm-hmm. policy. That's one process with it's also rules and, and it's, it's logics and it's sort of material practices. Keeping the customer happy is another process. So you've really switched from one to the other. Yeah. I think that might be... And maybe now is not the time to segue, but that might be an interesting thing to focus in a segue. Because what that demonstrates is that there's the sort of stated rules of a system that everybody kind of sees. You could probably see somewhere, um, I remember I used to work at Best Buy, and I think at some point, like, our return policy was posted someplace. And it was also on the back of receipts. It's, like, codified, these are the rules. But are those really the rules, or are those just the thing that we have to have everybody sort of stick by because the real rule is something else? I mean, even just thinking, you know, from the opposite end of that, there's the procedures by which the the clerk kind of functions, which is like, you know, yeah, here are our store policies, follow them to the T, but at the end of the day, get money. Yeah. For us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You know, by by the bottom line. So Uh it's not counter to those rules, but it's the 
the rules are in service or the procedures are always in service to something else and right. there's unspoken procedures as well, which exactly. I think is the complicated thing to think about in ob objects of resistance, which is to think about you're resisting at once the code, but you also have to attend to the other piece of the code, the other piece of the law, the ways in which oppressive regimes function in ways that aren't necessarily explicit or obvious. You get, you're already jumping ahead. That's really good. I hate to even pull us back, but I just want to quick, I want to say why, I want to say why games, why Bogos makes the argument that games are good at representing this yeah. stuff because that's a key part of procedural rhetoric. So we've got like these processes, these procedures in the world. Probably there's a difference between those two. We're just going to sort of like put that to the side and not worry about it. Um, procedural representation um, Bogus talks about procedural representation. Um, we What we just did is described it with our words and our language. We had a conversation about it. That is not procedural representation. That is a sort of linguistic representation, um, a sort of classical rhetorical representation. Procedural representation is something specific for Bogost. And it is um, basically any sort of representation that explains processes with processes. Um, this is the really key thing. So um, for him, procedural representation, and this is a quote again, uh, uh, itself requires inscription in a medium that actually enacts processes rather than describes them. So this is what computers do. They function on a, on a set of rules. They have a logic, which maybe Bogus is drawing the language of procedure and, mm -hmm. and uh, from the computer machine, yeah. I think, is a fair argument so, to make. Yeah. I think he's kind yeah. of almost explicit about that. I think it's his mm -hmm. point, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and basically, like, the, the, the thing that's interesting, the thing we're looking for, as Kyle was saying before, uh, of like what is unique about these computers? What are they doing differently? How what kind of what kind of work are they doing that other media aren't? Uh, it's this procedural rhetoric. They can use processes to describe processes. The final thing I want to draw our attention to is, and I think this this these terms procedural rhetoric, it might still be a little bit unclear to you. Like how does this actually relate to video games? And and Bogos makes this. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to introduce even more confusing terms before it gets clearer, but I promise it does. Um, Bogus has this. Bogus is sort of well versed in rhetoric, which is a sort of field of study that is often alongside, within, next to is English departments in the, in the United States. It often finds homes in things like communication as well. Mm -hmm. And excellent media studies. Not really yeah, media studies. Yeah, like yeah. communications, mass media. To be fair, I think um, I think Shoot and Galloway are both communication slash media studies. Yeah. Right, right, right. That, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's what shoot was, yeah. Um, so Bogos draws on sort of classical rhetoric. And there's this idea of the enthymeme, which is a thing from Aristotle. And I promise this is going to be helpful. Uh, so <laughs> in the, the idea, there's, people have heard maybe of the syllogism before. And the syllogism is when you have two sort of premises and then a conclusion. Uh, and so the, like a good example is like, oh, can you do the Socrates one, Sabine? <laughs> So it's like all men are mortal. All men are mortal. Socrates, Socrates is, is a man. man. Therefore, Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Thanks, Terrell, for stealing my thunder. I mean, that's literally you the take only it again? thing I'm trained in can you doing. Take, can you, you, you want to take it again? Let's take it again. Just take. No, I, I can't anymore. Okay, the moment has passed. It's fine. <laughs> I'm sorry. I tried. Sorry, Sabine. All, He's not sorry. All people are jerks. Terrell is a person. <laughs> Terrell is a jerk. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> That one actually holds up too. <laughs> yeah, Not the, mostly the first premise. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know, I'm Kyle is super smart, too. guys. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a syllogism. You've got your two premises and your conclusion. Man, this is just—it's hot in this booth. Right? Hot, jeez. <laughs> Woo. Hot. Got a lot of tension. Um, an enth an enthymeme is is a is a sort of figure of speech or kind of rhetorical move, something like that. 
Yeah, uh, where basically one of those premises is left out. And this happens in oratory all the time where you'll hear someone say, we can't trust this guy. He's a politician. What's missing there is the idea that politicians are untrustworthy. Yeah. So like the There's full like an assumption that you have the cultural lexicon to understand one of the points. Bingo. Mm-hmm. And that sort of engages the audience socially, brings them into the conversation like, yeah, I get what he's saying. He doesn't even have to say it. And this is like still an effective thing. People use this all the time. We probably do this all the time, right? This is just a way that that sort of communication happens. This this enthymeme concept is, is valuable in understanding video games because Bogos basically makes the argument that we can understand video games as like a system of what he says, a system of nested enthymemes where individual procedural claims that the player, uh, through uh, like a series of indivi- individual procedural claims that the player literally completes through interaction. So instead of sort of like listening to the person say a bunch of stuff and be like, oh, we can't trust this guy, he's a politician. You think, yes, I know that politicians are untrustworthy. The game gives you sort of a series of premises, probably more than just two. And through your action, you sort of participate in those, in those premises, in the system, and complete the syllogism with your action. Right. Mm-hmm. So the things that you do in the in the in the the things that we talk about when we sort of want to say interactivity uh, of you sort of getting in the system, like working with the tools it, it provides you with the mechanics it has, that thing we like about being part of the game. That's sort of this concept of the enthymeme of the yeah. procedural rhetoric. We're working through the rhetoric by playing the game. And I'll agree with that. But I think the important thing, too, and I'm not sure if Bogos really tears into this maybe as much as he should is that that leaves it a really wide space for interpretation, mm-hmm. right? And also a really wide space for your your kind of cultural, I said like cultural lexicon, it's like my favorite phrase. But like <laughs> if you have a different kind of cultural repertoire yes. than someone else, you know, <laughs> right. you can come to radically different conclusions about what the game, that's what exactly. the enthymeme versus the syllogism kind of like approach would right. do is it leaves that massive space open for mm-hmm. per- a person who maybe says like, Oh, but I, I trust my politicians, you know? Like, I don't, like, they're a politician. Like, oh, cool, then they really care about the people or something, right? Like, someone who just has a totally different uh, exactly. conception. Yeah. And um, in the example of um, film studies, this is where questions of the oppositional gaze or oppositional spectatorship really come into play. Is that sort of space where that the um, enthymeme opens up raises the question of those possibilities. Um, something else that, you know, Kyle, you brought up, I think, on our third episode, Civ, uh, Civ uh, Five was that it's that kind of ability to get immersed into the kind of procedurality of the game that then is how the enthymeme, I think, functions. Because it's that sort of space that's filled in with the play. You know, mm-hmm. The assumption that a shooter is correct or the shooter gives you the objective to go play out in the world, that sort of, that trust in the rhetoric of the shooter becomes a mm-hmm. kind of trust in a sort of government of sorts. And the, the way that games offer that possibility of taking in logics, um, without uh, being critical about them or aware that you're taking them in. Yeah. 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 All right. So 41 minutes in. Let's talk about, you want to talk about the games. <laughs> we should probably talk about the games. Yeah. Th- these are short games. They are. I think the longest one we played was Wake Up. Wake Up or, or depending on how long you get into, if not now, when. That's true. Right. Yeah, Wake yeah, Up like, took me maybe 20 minutes. Yeah. 15, 20 minutes while. I played. Yeah. yeah. Takes uh, a little while. Yeah, so so like I said before, they're they're from the Resist Jam. I wanted to just it was from March third to March thirteenth, two thousand seventeen. And this is an online game jam, uh, and it was the there's I have a couple quotes from their website just to give it some context of what the goals of this game jam were. Uh, they have themes, goals, etc. And this one uh, on their website, they say that they are about creating games that resist oppressive authoritarianism in all its forms. Um, and so then a little description. The global political climate grows increasing, uh, increasingly terrifying by the day. We want to empower people to resist through the power of interactive media. 
Not everyone can march or be a figurehead of a movement, but we can all find ways to resist the oppressive hegemonic authoritarianism that pervades modern society, and this is one of them. So this is the sort of, you know, this is the atmosphere under which this this game jam was carried out. And uh, the first game we wanted to talk about was a game called Pivotal. So Pivotal is a very short game. Uh, it's maximum of like five minutes yeah, long. I think it automatically ends. At yeah, five minutes. it basically mm-hmm. can't be longer than that. So it's um, it's got this. It's just it's composed of just like a single sort of cross section of this sort of cyberpunk looking apartment, basically. Very like Blade Runner. Yeah, looking. very Blade Runner, yeah. like pinks and blues and like really fluorescent colors. Uh, and basically, you have a like a suitcase on, in the upper left corner, and all these little objects that you can mouse over. And a little description pops up of them of like what they were. There's a photo album, and there's a or the, like a the cyberpunk equivalent of like a photo album. Uh, there's like a gun, and there's like food and all sorts of like memorabilia from your place. And the whole idea is that like you're you, you have a it's a friend or a partner or someone comes to your apartment is like they're coming. We've got to leave now. You got to pack your stuff, and you basically have like three minutes to like decide what you want to put into your suitcase, which is made up of like a grid of squares. And each object has a certain shape, and you basically have to just like rotate it and sort of Tetris it into your suitcase mm-hmm. to fit as many things as you possibly can in the time limit. So, um, I, I mean, I I think I think this game is pretty upfront about like what it's trying to uh, sort of simulate. But you know, this this idea of of like being chased out of your home, of being pursued, of having to leave in a, in a drop of a, like at a moment's notice. Um, and and just like the stress and all of that yeah. of like having to pack up your life in a few seconds is what this game is sort of providing us. And, and I think it postulates like what's important to you because there are two broad <laughs> groups of items. One group that is meant that are like memorabilia. It even says like this isn't worth very much, you know. Or yeah. it's like a box of old jewelry. It's like not worth anything, but you know a lot of mementos from your family, or items that you could like actively resist with, like a gun. Uh, uh, there was like a manual that tells you how to resist, and yeah. I was like, "Oh, cool! I would love to read." Man, that actually, can we like click out and drag out of the <laughs> yeah. game? It yeah. was like if this has all the information on the regime and how to take them down, and I yeah. was like, "Oh, chill, just copy that, cool. and give it to everyone, and then yeah. you did it, We're done. Good. We did it." Um, and so, yeah, I think it's pretty straightforward. What I was trying to say is like, do you balance them? Mm-hmm. Do you go on one side or the other? I- I'm not sure, but the impression I got was that the memorabilia things are kind of easier to fit in the bag. Like, they're hmm. more square. Yeah. Uh, they're less kind of hmm. weird shapes. I did not even pay uh, attention to I'm that. I'm not sure. So yeah. I noticed that a lot of the memorabilia stuff kind of had the, uh, I don't even remember the name of the shape, but it was almost, they're most like shaped like a T. So yeah. if you could shift them around, they could solve some, like, you know, sh- yeah. space problems that yeah. you yeah. had. There was the EMP. Yeah. Which yeah. by far was like the easiest thing to place because it was like, nice like four squares. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, so what were your experiences with with the game? Well, so what I found really interesting was, and Terrell and I talked about this a little bit earlier, but that Pivotal, in a lot of ways, was the most simple game and also the most contextually constrained, right? Because when you're kind of thrown into this scenario in medias race, you don't know what's going on, and you're not really given much direction, and you are on this very you know, you're constrained by time and you don't actually progress in a lot of ways in the game, right? It's just this five minutes of you thrown into the situation. And it, in that way, it differs from the other two games, which we haven't talked about yet. But at the same time, it almost affords you the most agency out of all three of them um, because you're confronted 
with these items and without direction, it's a lot of it's it's on the player really to kind of decipher what's going on and look at these objects and understand maybe what the situation might be and what it is that you're tasked to do. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I mean, th- ha- being confronted with objects of such different, I don't know, let's say, um, like values, values, or, uses, yeah. right? Um, and having to and having a very limited space in which to to collect your things, it makes you kind of reflect on yourself. Like if I were in the situation, what is exactly, it that I would yeah. be prioritizing? Exactly. And that that for me set it apart from the other two. Yeah. So there are a number of things that keep these games in conversation with each other, um, and also sort of common points between them. One of the things that occurs to me now, and I didn't realize before, is I don't think they have a fail state. As in, there's no way to earn a game over screen either way. So I'm even thinking about, you know, in this game Pivotal, because there's there's a timer and there's sort of a time mechanic where the the friend comes in and tells you that they're coming and you literally have like only a few seconds left before all things are over. But I think even if your suitcase is half full, you probably still win or get an ending. Um, But the interesting part about that is, and this is, I think, one of the more powerful things that games can do, I think, you know, Derek and I, I think we had a conversation with a professor about this recently, is that even if there's no fail state, you kind of impose a fail state upon yourself. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's a fail state just kind of morally, like this is a thing that I should do. Like if I'm an activist or I'm a part of the resistance, I shouldn't be packing my jewelry, right? I shouldn't be packing these things that don't have use because that would not be useful and that is a kind of failure of sorts. Or it's you think that the game could fail you or the game could judge you. So for example, if you're packing all this useless jewelry, what does that kind of say about you with respect to so on and so forth? And I guess maybe this is kind of me responding from our episode on Twine Games where I think the game very much made judgment or I forget what it was, sub, no. Which one? Shabbat? No. Eden. 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 It was Eden. Where I feel like the game very much made Comments on you know your choices, yeah. <laughs> the things that you decide sure. to do or not do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. But um. But yeah, I felt like it's interesting the way that when you take out that that piece of the syllogism and you're forced to replace it in an mm-hmm. interesting way with your choices, there's so much else going on there. Well, at the same time, there's no there's no victory, right? So there's no fail yeah. state, but there's also no way to gauge how well you're doing, yeah. which is which for me was almost more disturbing, right? Mm-hmm. It was I, I needed something to check my progress and make sure what I was doing was the right thing. And I mean, that makes you reflect on yourself, but it also goes back to this emphasis on procedure, right? All these games are about the procedure. And in a lot of ways, I mean, when we take on tasks, we're looking at the end goal and not thinking often about how we're getting there. Mm-hmm. And this game kind of takes that away from you, right? You don't know where you are. You're thrown into this world. Um, you don't even know if there's a resolution to be had in the little world that you're playing. And yet you are, all you're doing is trying to get to this unknown destination. So you're forced to confront the procedure and the process and how you get there. And and that I think was one of the most brilliant things about these very short um very simple, otherwise simple games. Absolutely. I, you know, Sabine, I thought you were actually going to go a different way with it at the end because you made me think um, what, like, being thrown into this situation with like no sense of like, what what did I do? Like, why am I even being pursued? What, like, both narratively and sort of at the play level, like, what am I supposed to be doing as a player? And like, why do I have to do this? None of those are clear. And they all sort of like, 
are this disruption, this sort of like breaking out of the norm in a certain sense. So like both the thing representative re represented in the way that we interact with these games are just like, uh, what am I supposed to do? Like, I don't know the procedure. And like, I wonder if Pivotal actually functions as a, an example of something that goes against what Bogost is actually or uh, um, arguing. And like, this this is actually a breakdown of procedure. This mm -hmm. th this is like this sort of diasporic moment. This moment of flight is the interruption of procedure. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to take this in a philosophical direction. Please if you do. Don't mind. Um, but we, we don't allow that on this podcast. <laughs> the historian's putting his history <laughs> hammer <laughs> down. Philosopher. This is not about interpretation. <laughs> they don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, in uh, a lot of contemporary continental philosophy, particularly in phenomenology, there's this concept of being in the world, right? And being in the world is your kind of situatedness in a world that you understand, in which you're, you comport yourself in particular ways because you're familiar with the world in which you're thrown in. And then what, what these games do is there is no world, right? right. You, you're not being in a world that's recognizable. You don't know what the world is. You don't know what the stakes of the world are. You're just, you really just are you, you're being. Um, and all you can do in these worlds is be, right? There's no, there's no way to understand if what you're doing is going to make an impact. There's no way to understand if what you're doing is is futile, it's just having to reckon with yourself in a situation that is mm. unfamiliar. Yeah. That's really well put. Yeah, yes. I think it was very similar in our week on, in our episode on Twine Games. Yeah. Like, the, because you're lacking the kind of visual stimuli and, like, you know, frankly, like, the amount of money and time that yeah. you put into a game yeah. in, you know, like a AAA game. 3D dimension, 3D yeah, space, you, you don't get right? that space where you're like, okay, cool, I'm in the world, I can see it, this is what is, this mm -hmm. is who I am, this mm -hmm. is who everyone else is, this is what matters, um, and you kind of have to make up that for yourself. Uh, you have to, I guess, input that part of it for yourself based on you and who, what you, yeah. who you are and how you play games. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it, it's, I think that's what makes this game so powerful. It's such a short little thing, but it explores some, this little experience in such a powerful way. Um, I don't know. And, and so... If we're sort of not sure procedural rhetoric or not, do we see ways that this game sort of how would this game sort of like intercede in politics and contemporary politics? Do we see it as doing that? I think we should always be open to saying no, it doesn't. Like maybe it's fun or maybe it's cool, a good important experience to have, but maybe it doesn't actually change anything politically. I think this game puts on the table two things that um I think do exist in a tension, but don't necessarily have to. And those two things are, what does it mean to gather stuff from one's current existence to, for the purpose of trying to establish a new life and a new existence? Mm -hmm. And to be fair, if we're talking about maybe migration, mm -hmm. um, and perhaps in instances of um, refugees, that's a real thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the I don't. I can't back this up with any veracity. I only have representation through something like television. But there is a kind of narrative that's been developed of Syrian refugees through certain TV shows, of coming here and there being somewhat of a, you know, friction because the way of life that, you know, they th they want to live in terms of escaping from an oppressive regime is sometimes in conflict with what people assume about yeah. people who happen to be Muslim for yeah. a number of reasons, right? Um, and that's one thing that I think is part of responding to oppression. But then there's the 
desire to take down an oppressive regime. And I think in many ways we could see, you know, when I first started interacting with the game, one part of me thought, okay, this box of treasure, your plush toy, like, mm -hmm. sure, maybe that has some <laughs> sentimental value or whatever. But, like, like, take the ramen. Like, you need food. Right. right. <laughs> but the ramen, right. Like, the ramen had, like, utility. The mm -hmm. plush toy didn't. But then it started to raise questions about, well, what counts as utility? Yeah. Why are we sort of, is it useful to counterpose those two things? And yeah. I think that one thing that exists, and I think in each of the games, maybe not so much in, um, if not now, when, but that sort of space of resistance, which is a kind of exterior thing, and then the sort of space of what some would call interiority, mm -hmm. and what it means to sort of have an interior, very lively sort of yeah. um, ah, sociality, energy, whatever. Yeah, sure. Throwing words for my comps. <laughs> um, so I like the connection that you're making with them, having to leave behind something. And in this case, you're not sure what it is you're leaving behind, but you imagine it's your it's your former life. So what I think is actually quite brilliant about Pivotal is that it asks you in subtly and without words at all is what sort of future do you envision for yourself or what sort of future do you want to make for yourself, right? And that those are the questions that so many people in this world have to ask themselves because they're on the run, right? There is ne not necessarily a home to turn back to. So do you take things in, to ensure that you have a home, that you can make a home for yourself, or do you accept the circumstances? Do you decide that, you know, I'm going to fight no matter what that means, no matter who it is against? You know, so it, it, it asks a lot of complex questions without actually asking you anything, which I think is, is one of the most powerful things and also one of the most relatable things about being somebody who's politically active or politically persecuted or, or alive in the world that we live in today. Yeah, yeah, nailed it. I, I don't, great. I don't have anything else. No, That's great. <laughs> uh, let's move on to wake up. So wake up is a uh, sort of twenty-ish minute, a little bit longer, probably the longest of, of the games, depending. Uh, game. It's online. Uh, it's an interactive story. Um, I've written. It's kind of about a person who gets fed up with like the status quo and is living under this oppressive regime. Uh, it's got this Orwellian feel. Sabine, you mentioned that. I think that was spot on. And it's, it's very simple. It, there's, there's really no graphics. There's just sort of text and these circles that you can click on, click and hold on, or click repeatedly on to sort of advance yeah. and do the thing. Three different types of input. Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, so basically it just tells this short story. It's not complicated at all at the mechanical level, but it, I think it's kind of powerful. What, how, did you guys, how did you guys feel about Wake Up? I loved it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I liked it a lot. Cool. I, of all the three games, I think I liked it the most. Um, Say more. Yeah, so, you know, like Derek was saying, it is based on, like, clicks and text, um, kind of similar to, like, a Twine game in that way. Um, Very much, yeah. You know, there's, like, a little bit more graphics involved in it, but basically the, the plot, you know, is you, uh, every day you have to wake up, you know, and you click wake up and your alarm's going off and you're like, uh, um, you get a couple options at the start that say, like, kiss your partner, um, drink some coffee, and then go to work, and you have to walk to work, and then your boss yells at you because you're late, and then you have to work. And that's basically, repeat that with minor changes every day for like 20, 20, or 30 days. Yeah. Um, and so just, just a little thing that I noticed right at the start, which I thought was really interesting, was I woke up and I was like, okay, should I kiss my partner, drink coffee, go to work, go to work? And I was like, well, it was like when I wake up normally in the morning, I like kiss my partner and then like, you know, I drink some coffee and then go to work. I'm like, okay, so I'll do that. And then my boss yelled at me and I was like, oh, okay, like I messed up, like mm -hmm. 
I was like, I get it. They're going to say, like, it's because I took the time to kiss my partner right. and drink my coffee that, like, I was late. I was like, chill. Okay, cool. Uh, went back home. The next day, I woke up, just went right to work. Like, no, I'm going to win this time, yeah. says <laughs> Kyle. I'm going to win this time. And the boss still yelled at me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, well, fuck this guy, right? <laughs> I was like, and so, <laughs> and so which, I, I'm not sure if this is the plan or not, but, like, it actively encouraged me to always do those little things, kiss my partner, mm-hmm. yeah. drink my coffee, as, like, a way to spite the kind of, like, authority, yeah. that, which is your boss, who, again, it's only text. It's just, like, right. big, big, loud red words, and he goes, like, yeah. uh, 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 yeah, It's know? good. It's a good sound. It scared, really scared me the first yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, like, I, you know, earphones so on. It's Yeah. yeah. Um, caps lock. Yeah. <laughs> and I think th- this is something that really intrigued me about the game was, like, I'm curious about the designer or designers because it seems, you know, very Orwellian, but also kind of reminiscent of people who maybe understand authoritarianism and power Mm -hmm. in a way that is not super consonant with the United States and how we think of it. Although I think that's changing in the past maybe (laughs) six or, you know, ten ten and a half months. Yeah. Um, To the point of, like, authoritarianism is not, you know, I think in the U.S. or, you know, places like France, we think of it kind of in the Foucauldian sense. Like, there's power, you know, and power operates in these kind of capillary-like ways. It gets through everything, and it's about culture and discipline and about society and the discourse. Um, but the power in Wake Up, similar to 1984, is like there's an authoritarian oppressor. They are called the regime. They have secret police that will come to your house and kill you, you know, like mm-hmm. in the USSR during the worst times of Stalin in, you know, Southeast Asia or in like Cambodia or in um, the Philippines or, you know, any like any of these places, uh, the, the Ukraine, right? Um, it has it had a kind of different politics to that. And what it reminded me of, what like that kind of process that made me drink my coffee, made me kiss my partner, things that you don't normally think have a politics to them. They're like, yeah, they're just actions you take, you know, physically or socially or economically or whatever. They don't really have a politics to them. It reminded me a lot of this debate uh, among historians and critical theorists uh, about life under slavery in the United States. Because mm-hmm. uh, life under slavery is kind of the, mo- the, the, the space of most absolute oppression you can imagine, where... Some another person, a class, rules your entire body, your life, everything about you is controlled by someone else. And some scholars in the 1950s and 60s, and uh, it's been kind of a th- developed and articulated well in the, in the 30, 40 years after that, um, posited this idea of resistance. So, this, you know, there were slave rebellions, but that wasn't the only way that slaves could resist, right? By hiding food, by going to make their own churches in the woods or whatever. Um, slaves could resist uh, and form solidarity and networks. And so for me, drinking that coffee, kissing my partner, was my small act of resistance in the face of overwhelming oppression. Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly, Kyle. And Wake Up for me, too, was initially very impactful in a way that I wasn't anticipating. And a lot of it was because of the simplicity. Um, A lot of it was because of the recognizability of the sort of authoritarianism that I was invoking but also because I thought it exemplified this concept of resistance more than the other two games, which are very much more overt in in the fact that you are actually, I mean, you have the capacity to resist. You know that you know that right off the bat and pivotal, right? You have access to guns and resistance manuals and you don't get that in Wake Up. You're just, you're forced to make decisions and you have so few of them. It makes you really sit back and reflect on, okay, well, if all I can do is kiss my partner and go to work. Am I going to take advantage of this, this moment, this which might be the only moment that I have in the day to do this, right? And 
<clears throat> I think it, I mean, you, so the game starts in medias res. I think it starts on day 230 something, right? Yeah. So I think that's, that's important. So you're, you're going into this. Um, it's the first thing you see is, is the date. And then you are confronted with the text and sort of, you know, the mechanics of the game, which are very simple and very short. But you get, you feel the 236 previous days pretty much immediately because yeah. of how frustrated you are yeah. in the There's game. like a weight behind you. There yeah. is. You can feel, it feels mundane the minute you start. And it's supposed to, right? Because Absolutely. that's kind of, you're supposed to feel that sort of hopelessness, right? That's what authoritarianism tries to do is break you down and and make you nothing but this like shell of a human being, which is what the game um, allows you to do. Right. You have the option of just going through your day and then you have these little bursts of moments in which you can resist. They kind um, of pop up on the screen and then go away pretty quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like you have to make a split section, second decision, which I think is very much how people in these contexts have to operate. Right. They don't have the luxury of thinking about, well, OK, so today I'm going to, you know, meet up with my organizers or with the rest of my camp and we have this plan laid out. No, it's you alone in the world, um, made to feel alone in a world that wants you to feel as though you have nobody to rely on. Um, and you just start looking for these moments and you have to decide in the moment, am, am I going to take advantage of this or am I going to keep doing what I'm doing, right? And so I, I think that the game makes, con- makes you confront that because the only other option is to do the same thing over and over again. I think that was quite powerful. And and just like the the length of the game, like 20 minutes doesn't sound that much, but like yeah. 20 minutes of just like clicking the same buttons yeah. over and over again quickly gets, it sets in with that monotony. It sets in, yeah. it's like a black background with just these little very sort of minimalistic yeah. circles. It really feels oppressive quite quickly. Yeah. I mean, I even got to the point where, so when you go to work, you have to click like a a, sc- a circle full of clicks was so like click 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 you can't just go like click 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 there's like a timing to it yep. mm-hmm. and by like the nine or tenth day I was like click 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 like I had it timed perfectly oh, wow. to like I'm gonna hammer the, the like yeah. nail or whatever right. to just make like a ding 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 sound yep. and I was like oh man I like I'm totally a tool of the state you know <laughs> like I I've totally like just reinforced like, yeah. the, the strictures of the state under yeah. my clicking habits so. yeah you know I yeah. didn't pick that up because that was something I was thinking about and because to maybe insert Bogost into how we think about Wake Up, that clicking to me, I thought the point was you click, 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 but it's only after so many clicks that anything really kind of moves forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's kind of a, whether there's some moments where a click translates into one bar of the kind of circular kind of perforated <laughs> piece. Um and other moments where it doesn't. And I think... Nope, it's just a click every 1.5 seconds or okay. something like that. Yeah. So then... That was... <laughs> I thought you needed more than one click per bar. Nope. Uh-uh. Huh. It just has to be timed. Uh, Turns out you guys okay. are bad at games. God. This guy. We just fist bumped? <laughs> I, I need everyone... It was super cool. I need everyone to know that. That yeah. just happened. It was, okay. they, we I, totally own Terrell. I was, it was warm in here, but I just got roasted. It got yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's toasty. So did you, Terrell. I'm sorry. Well, um, I'm going to spite both of you Yeah. by just coming out and saying that I think, frankly, I, I, got, some, I got some beef. Okay. I got some beef. Okay. okay. And no, I'm going to take the heat of the room and fry it. Draw yeah. it out. Draw it out. Um, so as, as awesome as this discussion of, you know, 
quotidian resistance, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. is um, why is it enough? Why do you, why it? do you not progress in the game? Why do you not achieve the win state? Mm-hmm. Well, you do. You join the resistance. Right, then, right, right. Yeah. But you but you have to betray the the everyday. The simply kissing oh, yeah. your wife and drinking mm. the coffee isn't enough. You have to snatch the true moments of rebellion. Mm-hmm. And then it raises the question of why are some moments codified as rebellion mm-hmm. and those everyday things that you do not codified as rebellion. Yeah. Right? The game definitely is clear. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think another sort of video um, from Errant Signal, a.k.a. Campster, a.k.a. Chris Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> a.k.a. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, his video on Alien Isolation, which is, I think is a great video for a number of reasons. But in it, he kind of makes a point very close to the, some of the things we're talking about, and he sums it up quite well with a small quote. Um, Today, you don't win the battles with the things um, that give you anxiety. You just endure. Mm-hmm. And to a certain degree, the narrative of um, Wake Up, if we kind of can lay that out, is that eventually you leave your job, you join... Um, a different job as a, uh, journalist. Like a journalist. journalist. Yeah. That was kind of weird, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Only, yeah, it was like, and you become a journalist. I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> I guess. Right. Quite yeah. visible yeah. and overt. But. Yeah. Um, and then things kind of take a turn for the worse. I mean, your, your, wife, leaves your you. wife eventually leaves you. Interestingly, it starts as your partner and then turns into your wife later in the I game. For, I forgot. <laughs> I, was I didn't crazy. really it does pick that. up on yeah, that. Yeah, I was like, I mean, it makes sense. I have a wife, so like, I get it. Right. Like, I okay, I don't have Not a wife. Bragging. But, actu- but actually, you I mean, get one. <laughs> it's great. It's what I'm missing in my life. <laughs> Everyone should have just one. putting out the call. Uh, well, so one of the so what was quite, so two things were quite fascinating. So one on the quotidian resistance, which I think is a brilliant way of putting that, actually. Um, so the game presents you with very obvious, overt ways of of resisting, right? Because the little, the word appears, right? Rebel. And it's not, you're not kind of wondering what that's going to be. I mean, w- what actually rebellion involves is a different story, but but you kind of know what you're doing, right? You're going against what it is that you're supposed to be doing. But in other moments... Um, you take advantage of of quotidian motions, right? You can go home, you can go get a drink, you can go to happy hour, right? And then that's where you start building these relationships of solidarity with other people who are feeling the same way that you are. It's how you learn that your colleagues are maybe as dissatisfied as you and have been thinking about the same things as you. And it's it's those quotidian moments that build the foundation that one needs for a resistance. Um, yeah. But on the on the question of the wife, which I'm gonna harp on because I thought it was so fascinating, um, <laughs> sexist. No, I, I'm, I'm just kidding. I mean, I'm not kidding. But, you know, that's not what this comment is about. Um, so at one point in the game, you you get this message um, from the regime, and they tell you, you know, uh, fraternizing with the rebels is cause for imprisonment or oh yeah or whatever it is. And then the next line is. And relationships with the same gender are prohibited. Yeah. And it's the like, whole whoa. message. I forgot about that too. I it's thought it was like, like a translational thing. Right. Like I was very yeah. curious about that, yeah. And so for 
for a little while, I was like, okay, this game's going to get real. Like, we're going to be confronted with more of these decrees limiting our civil freedoms. And then, like, two days later, I find I wake up and I find that I have a wife. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) this, I am so subversive. (laughs) This is about me. Oh, my God. I, and it was, it felt (laughs) totally unintentional, I think. Why not just be a man? (laughs) (laughs) That solves the problem. I know, I know, gosh. But, you know, if I'm going to resist, I want to resist all the way. Yeah. I love that. Though. Yeah, because for you, it was like, oh, my God, I, all of a sudden I'm being more, I'm, I'm resisting even more. All yeah. of right. a sudden, like, that's, that's cool. That's right. really cool. I think that interestingly, I mean, I, I don't know about this, but we could probably take almost every authoritarian dictatorship ever. They probably all didn't like gay people. Oh, definitely. Right? I think Probably statistically, not. are there I any mean, like pro gay dictators? In uh, the world? man, that's, I would say let's, no. Let's, yeah. <laughs> so go ahead and tweet. So at, at least us. there's that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's 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 take a step back for a second and count how yeah. many pro gay democracies. Yeah, that's fair. fair enough. <laughs> yeah, don't but, even need to go that far. <laughs> but you know, actually, what was so interesting about the whole, you know, um, starting out with hearing it's your partner, and I really think it would have been more powerful if they had kept that all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as a woman playing the game and then being told that, oh, my partner is a woman um, after he- reading that message, because it was mm-hmm. only after that message that you find out that it's a wife, that your partner is not um, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband. Um, but it is, it's kind of, in a very perverse way, it's, it's um, the veil of ignorance, mm-hmm. right? You're thrown into this world, day 236, and you have no idea who you are or what you are. Um, you have no idea who your partner is. You don't know if you are, well, you, you know that you're not part of the elite class, right? Because you're this worker and you, and the sound effects that the game gives you when you're pressing those buttons, it, it invokes, you know, these images of being in a factory yeah. doing this very monotonous yeah. sort of, um, solitary work, um, which is, you know, makes you think is that you, you, I'm just a cog in this machine. I don't have a purpose. Like I, who I am doesn't matter at all, right? I think the game displays that much more powerfully than the other two. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Did you have a thought that I kind of interrupted before, Terrell? Oh, I think it's just important to maybe lay out the rest of the game. Yeah. Right? So we talked a little bit about that sort of moment where. The um, your wife leaves. leaves yeah. Um, shortly after that, you return to your apartment and you find it's been vandalized, vandalized mm-hmm. pro regime uh, graffiti all over the place, and that sort of begins a kind of darker sort of turn in the in the game, where I think you're on a roof and I thought that part was kind of beautiful, like because like during the game, whenever like you know, your friend gets arrested, like, the next day when you wake up, you see, like, words kind of are shaking Mm -hmm. over the screen. And normally it's, like, tired, sleep, and then you just get, like, fear, Mm -hmm. anxiety, like, murder, friend, Mm -hmm. and, like, they kind of, like, pop in and out, and then you're on the roof, and sorry for cutting in. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Let me correct, you know, after asking you to fill it. Yeah, (laughs) You're on the roof, and, like, it all comes popping up really, really fast, and it says breathe, and, Mm -hmm. like, you breathe, and some of the words go away. And then you breathe again, and some of the words mm-hmm. go away, and then finally, like you're left with an empty mind. And I think the assumption is you were going to kill yourself because, like, For you sure. can't deal with the. And the last word to go away is suicide. 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 Yeah. 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 I. You know what? I. I find that very dissatisfying. Yeah, that's um, fair. I think that's a fair reaction. I was. I was like lukewarm on it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like the game was so nuanced up to that point, yeah. and then yeah. it was so overt. Mm-hmm. And at a certain <laughs> point, I was like. 
well, do I have the option of committing suicide? Because yeah. that would be fascinating. My yeah. guess is like if this were to become a real full game, like yeah. you right. could get similar to like the Stanley Parable or, or games like yeah. that that have like 48 different endings. Right, right. Right. Like sure. you could do like literally, I think that'd be really neat. But like mm-hmm. I kind of knew at that point, I was like, I know I'm not going to be able to kill myself. Yeah. Like, right, yeah. There's going to be a win state. Probably maybe that would be the end state. But yeah. yeah. And, and like to the wrapping up, if... If that sort of almost suicide scene, <laughs> okay, the suicide scene is like maybe a divisive one, which I I, I don't know, I, maybe I'm back and forth on it a little bit. The ending is this big flashes of triumphal like, resist. It's like this yeah. music starts playing that like Ugh. comes in. It's just like duh, 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 so you are winning. I was like, let's go. Yes. But are you winning? I, I, you don't know. Right, right, right. No, I mean this is. I, I think it's really. It, it feels like I mean I could I have no idea how this game was made, but <laughs> I if thought it were it the case good. that they had to like throw at the end together yeah. at the very end of the jam, <laughs> mm. I wouldn't be surprised if they spent the least time thinking yeah. about how this ending because My... it's this really quick and it like mystifies a lot of like what you're actually doing. Yeah, like words pop up like resist, fight the power. I don't even remember what most of them. It's like resist, like, fight. Then it says like fail. Yeah, Cry. Le- learn. Cry. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. get better. Get pick pick yourself back up and like. <laughs> Uh, I I found it kind of cheesy. <laughs> I think, and it, and, and it, I found it kind of cheesy, and it just sort of, uh, you know, games are about abstraction. That's it like pretty it. much narrated one day in the life of you know me being on campus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I I, I so, which is why I was sad the suicide option wasn't available for me. You know, okay, sorry, I took that to a dark place, guys. I'm, I'm sorry. Damn. I'm okay. Sorry. I took that to a yeah. dark place. But wow. you know, actually, so the ending I found a little bit jarring. Yeah. Um, because jarring you you spin. go from this very slow paced game where yeah. you have a lot of options to this literal flashing screen, and yeah. you you find out that you're going from day two fifty to day two thousand and and five hundred, and you're like, what the hell is time, going on? Yeah. yeah, but it ends on day one. Oh yeah. So th- I liked it. So I, I, okay. I, I'm going okay. to okay. put the opposing Go point. Ahead. I, I, Go ahead. I liked it. Um, I, it was shorter, but I think it does something kind of neat, like ludically. So okay. like mm-hmm. if, if the if the first 25 days, which is like day 260 to 285 or whatever, is slow, monotonous, like based on like you have to complete your task. Mm-hmm. It is important that you complete your task. Yeah. The next 1800 days, which take 30 seconds, like mm-hmm. I, I found it kind of neat because you're you're going through and it says like fight and you start clicking the thing and you can click it as fast as you want yeah. and it'll fill up. I think the point being that like it doesn't, <laughs> like finishing it doesn't matter anymore. What matters is that you're like engaging in the resistance and that you have like a purpose in your life again, you know? And so that's why I think the days speed up and go really fast. It's super triumphalist, you know, it's like super like everything's great and it's cool. And then like the the cool moment where I was like, all right, guys, calm down is like it ends on day one and then it just says, wake up and you click it and the game ends. And they were like, yeah, you know, like they yeah. were so amped when yep. they ended it that way. Yeah. But what do you uh, think day one means? Is it day one of the new regime? I, my or guess is like day one... all the process you've been engaged in like leads to like the toppling of the regime, you know? I think that's the implication. And, like you did it. I just, I like, I think it, I think it's it super un- easy, I guys. It, so you just topple it. So, so I didn't, th- I didn't think that at all. I went okay. from, I, th- I, th- I interpreted it as a dream. Oh, Whoa. you wake up day one and it's, oh. and now you're confu- scenario. Yeah, confronted with this. Now you know like how it could go. Or something. Right. Oh, that's, huh. that's weird. Well, cool. Okay, so this it was all a dream the whole time, <laughs> and then you finally you wake up, and then yeah. you finally, finally wake, wake up. up. Oh, oh no! Shit. Oh. Would you would you say that that's a scholar at play pro tip? Play pro tip. <laughs> wake up! Scholars at play pro tip. Pro, 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 pro. 
Okay, we need to move on. I'll put the, the pro yeah. tips going in. There. One last um, thing I'll drop here. Yeah, though, sure. Is that I think this is a perfect example of the infamy, right? Mm-hmm. Is there's this thing, right? The regime. We have no clue what regime it is. Yep. We have no clue what the sort of policies of this regime are. We have no clue, like, how this oppression is taking place, yeah. right? And yet, you know, we, that sort of is up for our imaginations to fill yeah. it in. And some of us may fill it in differently. Apparently, those yeah. who are good at games fill it in differently. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> Me? What? Apparently, <laughs> skill <laughs> is boundless and the only thing that matters. Yep. Um, let's move on to If Not Now, When. Um, so If Not Now, When is a little different than the others. It is sort of, um, I'm going to call it a more gamey game. It's sort of really, it's, it's very much more systems driven. It's very mm-hmm. much like... You know, it feels like a lot of these other management sort of simulator games. It comes from that sort of lineage. Uh, basically, there's a camp, a sort of protest camp, a sort of, you know, the the, the reason why you're there isn't exactly clear. But uh, you basically have to make decisions about how to organize and supply this camp of protesters. Pretty, like, yeah. clearly inspired by, like, the Occupy Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Or, or any of the Standing Rock protest kind of sure. stuff. That was it. But, again, mm. hmm. Tell, yeah. Sorry, say, say that, was, that, was, that was too much. I, no, think, okay, I, just, okay. I guess I never thought about yeah. Standing Rock existing in that way or picking up from the Occupy Wall Street in that sense. I guess, I guess the Standing Rock only because it was like sort of set, there was grass, well, there were tents. Well, so it, to be it, fair, it was, there were resources that needed to get to people, so yeah. like, right, there's right. that parallel. It was yeah. clearly, I mean, it said at the end, literally, it was like the Occupy Wall Street movement started, and I'm like, I get it, I know. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But I like that too, that like there's a broader global movement that has echoes for... But, it, but it's not just Occupy because, so I was living in Turkey in spring 2013 mm-hmm. when the Gezi protests oh, sure, started, yeah. actually. And I mean, those were protests for preserving green sp- the last major green space in Istanbul, right? And mm-hmm. it's people protesting in this park. Yeah. Um, so it in, in a lot of ways, I think the immediate implication or the immediate inspiration was Occupy. And I think that's what's going to resonate with um, audiences who their biggest um, proximity to that sort of resistance movement would have been Occupy. But you know, even in the game, they talk about Tahrir Square and yeah. the Arab Spring and how it really is sort of, it transcends just one space, yeah. right? It's, it's anywhere that people are gathering together yeah. and trying to preserve something, right? Right, exactly. And so it has this sort of, it speaks to a, a variety of spaces and places and doesn't designate a particular one. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm just curious about your thoughts about the game and if you felt that... Because I, I think this one lines up maybe best with Bogost's idea of procedurality because it really is mm-hmm. like, you know, what is the process? Like, this is like, okay, the nitty gritty of organizing a camp is like, we need water and we need food and we need alcohol? people. And we need alcohol, <laughs> apparently. Yeah, apparently, yeah. As uh, someone who... Pert- mm. <laughs> <laughs> Scratch. Cut. <laughs> yeah, so like you need all... you Like organizing is is this nitty gritty like management, resource management thing. And like... You know that is certainly a thing that someone has to take care of when these when these protests last for a really long time. Uh, so I think th- it's a process of or- organizing is a process. It has its own logics, its rules, its material concerns, and here we have it in in a game. So I don't know. I feel like this is a, like a great candidate for being described through Bogost's terms. But I'm curious yeah. about your thoughts to that or beyond that as well. Well, so I'm I'm somebody who works in organizing in certain capacities, um, and a couple of a couple of us sitting here are. And so it was one. I was fascinated by how each game puts you in a different sort of degree of agency, right? And in certain games, like in Pivotal, you're it's just you. You're thinking only of yourself and your own future. And when you get to wake up, you are 
you find that you can make these relationships with your colleagues and you have this relationship with your partner and you're trying to navigate how to keep those all of those relationships in balance in your life, right, while maintaining your job. And then you get to, um, if not now, when, and you're, you're leading a group of people who you don't know, but you know are relying on you. And it's the first game, really, where other lives are in your hands in that way, in a very real sort of way. Um, so your entire mindset shifts, right? You're no longer thinking of just yourself, or at least one would hope that you aren't, <laughs> and given that you're in this leadership position, right? Yeah. And, and very easily, you could just spend the entire game trying to stock up on alcohol, <laughs> um, which I'm so sure fun. people have done. <laughs> right, yeah. But, you, but it's also, I mean... You, I love that at the end. At the end of the day, you have only three options, and one is prepare your weapons, another is campaign online, and the third is break bread. Mm-hmm. Um, and the implication that you're sitting down with these people that are on your side and who have, you know, dedicated part of themselves to your cause, right? Which you're leading. Um, so for them, you are who they're putting their faith in, and to take the time when you could be doing things that would be otherwise very integral to the to the protest movement, right? Making sure that you're prepared for worst case scenarios, um, making sure that you're keeping up your presence online, outside of the camp, but to spend it, to choose to spend a night with the people that you're leading and to be able to humanize both yourself and what it is that you're doing in that way, I think. The sort of agency that, um, if not now, when gives you is almost more powerful than the others because it's not just you. Yeah. Really? I mean, the social, like, basically, it's the only game that is interested in thinking about political action socially or, or like, in a a broad sense. Like, Mm -hmm. again, there's that transition. There's a little bit of the social element in in Wake Up. But this one, you, you really, like you said, you really can't just think about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing we, we didn't mention is that there are every day there are these little events that pop up and you sort of have this people from outside the camp want to come in or, or there's sort of, um, uh, you, I know there's all sorts of random events that can occur that can affect your supplies, affect the amount of people that want to come, the happiness levels and all that stuff. And, um, well, it's kind of like, um, we were talking about, you know, when you're returning something and you're talking to a person and you're trying to get past what is otherwise, you know, codified in a procedure, but it's not spontaneous. It's not, it's not that you're exiting the system, right? It's just a different set of procedures. And this is kind of what, um, I keep forgetting the name of this game, even though I say it every two minutes. If not now, when? when? It's interesting being confronted as somebody who's done organizational work, um, to me, being confronted with those interruptions that, oh, somebody raided your medical supplies the night before, you immediately go into a different way of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, all right, these, this is the scenario now. I know how to deal with this particular you know, context. There's, there's a separate procedure for this context. So it, it requires a shift in, in, at least in the way that you're, you had planned to go about your day, but it's something that you also, as an organizer, have to be aware of all the time. So you're prepared to deal with these, um, what seem like anomalies, but are actually things that you anticipate happening as somebody who's organizing in such a precarious situation. Yeah. It, and so now in a weird way, I think I mentioned this quote before that like Bogus wants to use procedural rhetorics to sort of critique ideologies and mm-hmm. games and not to like train skills or like show us how a thing, how to do a thing better. I'm almost hearing that, like, maybe playing this game doesn't teach you how to organize, but it does, like, let you know that 
hey, you're going to have to think about this concern and this concern. Like if you've never planned a protest like I haven't, uh, I don't. I don't have a checklist of things. Mm -hmm. And even though this is an abstracted version of that, you're like, okay, well, we have food, water, medicine, uh, uh, warm clothes, and uh, and like um, sort of social presence or something like that. There's a various number mm -hmm. of meters. That, so that starts to point you in the direction of like, oh, that's right. I have to think of like – and then the random events will be like, oh, these people didn't bring any clothes. You need to find some clothes for them. Mm -hmm. and, and it starts to introduce you to the intricacies of – of organizing, of like what it takes to do that. And maybe in a, it doesn't, I'm not making the argument it trains you how to be a good organizer, mm -hmm. but it does start to approach more something like what Bogost says he doesn't necessarily want to use procedural rhetoric to do. And mm -hmm. so now I'm kind of like on the opposite of where I started of like, maybe this is like a weird like, like base education for like what organizing actually consists of. Maybe it's not so much what organizing actually consists of because, well, especially if we're talking about Occupy, the idea that there is a single person organizing all of that. Yeah. I think that the leaderless movement is a is kind of half true, that there mm. were leaders, but yeah. that leadership was to some degree dispersed. You couldn't locate it in one particular individual or person. Yeah. But the idea that you had a certain responsibility for others um, and what it was like to have that responsibility and what was it like to... Because I think the one thing that it does, and I think this is something that... Yeah, and recently playing a, a very different game. Uh, Sabine, I think you and I talked about this game, um, recent game that came out for the PlayStation 4 called Senua's Sacrifice, uh, Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice, that tries to deal with questions of um, mental illness. Mm -hmm. And for reasons I won't get into now, there's a way in which the game, by virtue of its gaminess, can't really approach its object. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, to a certain degree, many of these games, by virtue of being games, can't really approach their object of... Um, what it is they're trying to do because the kind of gamey sort of mechanisms yeah. always try to get in the way. Sure. I think that this game avoids that by yeah. forcing you to figure out what the consequence for getting into a certain procedural groove is, right? Mm -hmm. okay. So, for example, yeah. at some point in time, I think all of us probably maybe responded to the blinking alcohol indicator when it got empty. We are like, <laughs> well... Maybe we should fill that. You know, every other turn, get some alcohol. Yeah. So on and so I mean, forth. I have my priorities right. I also have experience doing this. Right? So. She knows exactly what you need. So I'm just going to go back in my corner because apparently I don't know how to organize. Yeah, I don't know how to write. I don't know how to play video terrell, games. Yeah. So I'm just going to go back in my corner and shut up. But before I do that, yeah. um, <laughs> thank you, Derek. Derek gave uh, Terrell a tender, tender hug. <laughs> It's like Derek and Toronto. I would nope. give him a hug, but it was just hug. a pat on the back. It was a back. full on super tender hug. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate a little it. too long. And when Kyle <laughs> is describing this, he's describing what he as a person just did. So it's all the more awkward. But um, And he's jealous, just to be clear. <laughs> um, but to the point, you have to mess with these systems and see what some of the outcomes are. Because I think maybe we all saw this is that if you invest in alcohol, as a resource, or you try and gather much, a bunch of alcohol, it attracts people to the movement who aren't really about the movement, but are just about partying. And then it sort of puts that kind of element or that resource in its place to a certain degree and your sort of projected rhetoric and your sort of projected um, things that you're going for. And then there's kind of a, a quasi HUD, if you will, in terms of your phone yeah. and your phone <laughs> being able to track certain things. But over time, certain things appear on your phone mm -hmm. that wouldn't otherwise. And that certainly is a kind of shorthand because it's not as though, you know, you can just 
organizers can look at their phone and say, oh, we've got this many people in the movement. And <laughs> If only know. they could, right? <laughs> 65. Or actually also would be terrible because the government could just track it. Then. Exactly. <laughs> um, so. And, you know, this is how much water we have. And it right. will, you know, work this, so on and so forth, um, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But it kind of is a shorthand for, you know, being able to track those certain things. And certain goals, I think, eventually that, you know, in terms of goals that are – Meters that track your 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 proximity to the win state or the finish point of the game, which um, is a point in time where it's the game sort of says you've reached the end of the movement and you have two choices: end the protest, tell everybody to go home, or quote unquote go violent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, I mean, I was I was gonna bring up the the ending and ask you guys what you thought of it. And I think mm-hmm. it's also a good segue into the the Frost piece. Sure. This, yeah. this idea Perfect. that, exactly. you know, you're confronted at the end of, and, it, and the game spans 30 days. So you're organizing for 30 days and you, you're confronted with all of these spontaneous um, problems that you have to deal with, some successes, but um, it's been 30 days. And it's, it's not a very long game, but you feel like you've invested something into it, right? You feel like you've invested into your camp and you want to see it succeed. And then when you your only two options are end the protest or yeah. go violent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have to make that decision. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it seems like the game is encouraging you, right? If you're yeah. serious about this, that, all right, it's time to go violent, right? I mean, we, right. We, I prepared all my weapons. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this for 30 days. There's nothing else to be doing. But it, it is also uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It it kind of takes away the possibility of a sort of diplomatic resolution, right? Which mm-hmm. is something that has been coming up a lot in in disc- in you know contemporary discourse surrounding political activism, right? The politics of civility, what does it mean to sit down and hear the other side and mm-hmm. try to come to a consensus or an agreement mm-hmm. and um I think I mean a lot of what the Frost piece is doing is is critiquing precisely that sort of mm-hmm. inaction, right? Is it is it really an action to to sit down and negotiate is mm-hmm. that is that something that can lead to a victory? Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 The, I mean, for the the question of the ending is is tough and is an example where critics like Bogost is answering some critics critics in the book and they say, well, you can't argue back if you don't agree with the propositions that the game presents to you and you don't want to complete that enthymeme what are you supposed to do, right? Like if we're both, if we're dissatisfied with like literally only violence and ending the movement, mm-hmm. what if we're like, well, I want to keep it going, but like we march, we resist in a peaceful way, or mm-hmm. we don't let, like, like what? let's talk about what go violent means. Um, the game just isn't going to like allow us to have that sort of wiggle room. It's not going to provide us with enough options. And that's, and that's just like, you know, that's that's a limitation of 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 what procedural representation can do. I think. So, I don't know. I think you know pulling out the term enthymeme, which is perfect for mm-hmm. this for this episode. Yeah. Because it, it makes me think in a number of ways. Right. One, I think of the very real question: What does "go violent" mean? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and I just I don't have a, a concrete answer to that. Sure. And I've got a number of thoughts about it. But moreover, you know, when you say, "What if we march?" or "What if we do these particular things?" We go public. And I'm wondering, you know, this is supposed to be about Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. I um I was in D.C. Uh, when, uh, I forget exactly what they call it, Occupy D.C., for lack of a better term. I think it's just like the Occupy movement. Right, yeah. you know, but they tried to call it based on, like, the location. Like, it was Wall yeah, Street. Yeah, yeah. They called it K Street for a little while, and I think they had some other things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of the occupations there was we are so close to 
the White House. We mm -hmm. can march down there at any point in time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So part of the occupation was literally the ability to do that at any particular point in time. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, does the existence of this camp suggest that that is consistently a thing that is being organized in those spaces? Is it literally, is it, because I think another part of it, thinking about the sort of protest element of it, is, is this a withdrawal from those spaces, yeah. right? And that's part of the protest. Um, and I guess going violent, I mean, you know, what, I don't know, what are you doing? So on and so forth. Yeah, and yeah. like, there's some confusion. Is it like, you're, you know, are you trying to like overthrow the government? Are you rioting? Like what, like what's the, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. is there a purpose to violence? Is there right. not, you know, I, right. I, don't, I don't know. Right, right. I found it confusing. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, like most people, probably support like nonviolent protest. I think mm -hmm. it's a very powerful thing. Um, but of course, you know, like Martin Luther King Jr. said, a riot is the language of the unheard, right? Mm -hmm. So like yeah. violence, I think, also has a place in protest, especially yeah. in the face of like overwhelming apathy and disinterest, right? Mm -hmm. um, and violence. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. But <laughs> or at the very least, the game makes you reconsider how you attach a value to violence, mm. right? Like what kind of violence is it that you are concerned about? What sort of violence do you envision taking place? Is it the sort of violence that you would condone? Or is it the sort of violence that you think, no, I mean, no matter what the regime does, we have to comport ourselves in a particular way. Yeah, right. Which is, I mean, it's a large discourse right now talking about, I mean, especially in the post-Charlottesville um, world, right? Antifa has become this sort of um, taboo almost, mm -hmm. right? To be, yeah. to Consider yourself Antifa, which is what anti-fascist yeah. um, implies that you are you would stoop to the same level as mm -hmm. these AK-47 wielding white supremacists mm -hmm. who yeah. will march through and you know, run over protesters mm -hmm. without any sort of regard for yeah. for the sanctity of life, if there is such a thing. But then to say, okay, well, I've led this, I've organized this camp. It's been thirty days. All I can do is step down, or I can be violent. Mm -hmm. Is this the sort of violence that I think is is worth something? Is this violence different for some reason from mm -hmm. the violence that has been inflicted upon us and our yeah. movement? Yeah. So I had two thoughts um, concerning both endings. Um, first, my initial thought was, well, to take a very popular example or cultural moment of resistance, the Rebel Alliance in the Star Wars movies, they're kind of violent, right? They got yeah. guns, they yeah. fly ships, they blew up things, yeah. so on and so forth. Rogue One, the Death kind of a violent movie. <laughs> but, you know, when you have something like the Death Star, that's like... <laughs> Not a lot of subtlety. Unequivocally bad, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, yeah. I don't want that to exist. Yeah. Let's blow it up. Um, you know, it's really easy to be like, yeah, pro-violence. But even with something like discourses surrounding police right now, or even something mm -hmm. like the military, that it, you know, it's kind of easy to, from certain perspectives or certain angles, to say like, yeah, that's a lot of violence. It's a lot of really bad things. Is it as easy to say, ah, that's like the Death Star. Let's take it down. Yeah. Let's mobile up. Let's so on and so forth. The other thought that I have, and this moves in a different direction, is there's so many things that happen throughout the game. Um, where someone's inspired by what it is that you're doing and they want to contribute water or mm -hmm. contribute food or contribute time to fix things. And then mm -hmm. that leads to more people joining on. And those sort of moments where there's a kind of positive thing that's happening within the camp, does ending the protest end those things? Yeah. yeah. And do those right. sort of modes of sociality mm -hmm. in the camp, even once they're over, have a way of sort of lingering and transforming things in a kind of 
maybe, dare I say, Gramscian sense, right? The yeah, common sure. sense developed in the camp yeah. can spill out and challenge the common sense of the regime elsewhere. Yeah. So those are possibilities that, you know, upon clicking those buttons, because I think the result of clicking both buttons is, here's your summary of Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't really get. Yeah. Right. Well, so going back to violence, and I'm not taking a stance one way or another on this issue, but um, scholars like Derrida and Walter mm-hmm. Benjamin, yeah. right? They talk about how what it, what statehood is is precisely a monopoly on violence. Mm-hmm. So is is going is the opportunity to go violent a sort of subversive action that goes beyond just um, destruction of property or maybe even physical harm? Is it taking a, is it breaking out of the system? Right? Is it is it defying the procedure because mm-hmm. you by virtue of living in society, no matter where you are, you're giving something up, right? You're giving up your right to um, to violence, to mm-hmm. to to challenge, right? I mean, yeah. it's this is a social contract, right? You give mm-hmm. up certain rights for certain protections and then but what happens to those rights, right? What happens to your right to violence? Does it all go to the state? If mm-hmm. so, then I mean, is that why so much of the discourse um, on the left is no, no, no. We have to, we have to stay nonviolent no matter what the circumstances is. But just mm-hmm. you know, do we really have a proper understanding of what this violence is, mm-hmm. right, and what it means, and what potential that there is for certain sorts of violent action? And they don't have to be physically violent, but um, destructive action, right? Mm-hmm. If the state has a monopoly on destruction, then is is acting out against the state in that way really the only way to make the state look at you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think I think our conversation for the last couple of minutes attests to the the need for unpacking that procedural rhetoric through other forms of rhetoric and conversation like that. So yeah. um, we should we're very briefly very briefly touch on our touch on our <laughs> third text, um, which I'm going to summarize in a in sentence. Ten seconds. Go. Yeah. So for us, it's called "All Worked Up with Nowhere to Go." Like this is like a sort of self critique of the left and Mm -hmm. the conversation surrounding the differences between protests and marches and like organizing Mm -hmm. politically. And Frost's position is more or less strikes are the thing that get us the goods, right? So it's, we have the, the, the thing that really counts, the thing that really, as she writes, like fucks up people's day (laughs) Mm -hmm. is when workers stop working and when they refuse to continue to work until their demands are met. And so that's like that's her basically her hard line, uh, and and the she she has a couple she 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 says a few things she says a lot of different things in this article that we probably won't get to fully, but basically like one of the comments she makes along the way is like it's not about like the I'll, I'll say the whole quote the the hub of political power is not academia it's not the internet it's not media or comedy or romance or friendship or art or theory it's the workplace. Not about these other things. And insofar as games are, media, art, whatever, um, you know, she's basically saying, yeah, that doesn't really matter. And I'm curious about y'all's thoughts about this. I thought there was a lot of value to what she's saying, you know, Um, especially in terms of like, what is the purpose of a rally? What is the purpose of a strike? Like kind of as opposed to just like doing these things as reaction, like think through them. But I have a problem with the idea. Like, so she's kind of resurrecting this like new left politics of Mm -hmm. like the working man is the solution. Okay. Academia is work. Co- doing comedy is work. Mm-hmm. Everything is work. Right. Like, like this mythical, like 
the man, white man, working uh-huh, right. in a factory. Which is what it was. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, working in a factory who we have to get him back right. and like bring them back. You right. know, she, she has a line that says something like, you know, the th- they've been ignored by the broader left. And like, right. I don't want to alienate people, but at the end of the day, I don't think the people who used to vote Democrat and voted for Trump were alienated by me. Yeah. I think they were alienated <laughs> by the fact that uh, they don't particularly care for gay people yeah, or for people right. that don't look like them. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know how else to phrase it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Ta Nehisi Coates article just came out. Uh, yes. It's actually which a really is wonderful. Good to place yeah. It's mm-hmm. called mm-hmm. The First White President yeah. about mm-hmm. Donald Trump. It's excellent. You know, I, he makes everything he makes is awesome, right? Mm-hmm. But he argues that. This it wasn't the fact that like you know Trump was articulating this message that like that appealed to these people. It was the fact that he was white, and he was manipulating and using his whiteness in a way that that got to people. And mm-hmm. it wasn't about class. It wasn't that the people got left behind in Michigan and Pennsylvania by the Democratic Party. It was about race. Mm-hmm. It was about the politics of race. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I, I don't want to lay, like, ladle all this clear, you know, angst I have about this onto <laughs> just this article. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm kind of fed up with the idea of, like, the left left these people behind. You know, yeah. the, le- the left abandoned the working class. Yeah. I don't think that's true. I think the working class has been fractured, and I think the working class means a very particular thing, and it means white people working in the Midwest. <laughs> and so we should be clear. When we say the working right. class, we're not talking about black people. Right. We're not talking about women. Mm-hmm. We're talking about white men. Mm-hmm. And, okay, maybe the left abandoned them. They abandoned the left. But um, <laughs> we should be clear about what we're talking about. Sorry. Like, I don't have a lot of no, anger fair. about this. That's fair. I, I largely agree with, with what you said. I, I find the sort of emphasis on the workplace a little tired because we're all working people, right? Yeah. Um, so if we're not... I mean, if not us, then who, you know? Okay, <laughs> oh, but, hey, nice. See, that was good, Derek. That was you got to learn point. how to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But, um, but actually, so I think it's valuable to think about this piece in the context of when it itself was written, right? And she starts off saying, you know, this year, um, you know, so, or earlier this year in January 2017, Mark Fisher committed suicide, right? And Mark Fisher is this... Um, Public intellectual of sorts, uh, sort of David Harvey type of figure, um, more definitely more radical left leaning, and um, he published this article in 2013 um, called "Leaving Leaving the Vampire Castle," I think is what yes. it's called. Yes. And his article is a is a critique of the left, and it's the left in the UK, um, but very much applicable here, I think. Um, and it's it's a critique of it in a lot of ways identity politics. And that's a divisive, that's a divisive issue. And I'm not trying to make broad generalizations about identity politics. But what his concern is, is that the emphasis on identity politics takes away from our ability to actually develop relationships of solidarity with people that we don't know, right? And so if we think about the workplace as this sort of inevitability, right? I mean, we don't... In a lot of ways, we don't choose to be workers. We're forced into working just to live in a capitalist society today, right? We don't, and we don't choose who our coworkers are in the same way that we can choose what sort of media we consume, what sort of um, social groups we align ourselves with. But our colleagues, we don't always choose. And our colleagues, if we can't form relationships of solidarity with them, then there's no way to build a, uh, an entire party of solidarity, right? So this emphasis on the workplace, I, and I, I'm not sure if she's thinking about it in quite this way. And this might be an optimistic reading, which is a shocking thing for me to be doing, <laughs> quite frankly. Embrace it. Right now. <laughs> I'm going to lean into it, Embrace right? Embrace it, yeah. 
I'm just full of them today. Nice. You need to have more women on your show. We do. <laughs> <laughs> but this this idea of um, having to think about the people who you wouldn't Im- immediately think would be on your side, mm-hmm. right? And not to get too comfortable in your little enclaves because those that's when the left becomes impotent, right? That's when the left no longer has a strategy. That's when the left no longer has a goal mm-hmm. um, because it's all these groups vying for their identity and making themselves visible against these other groups vying for their identities and making themselves visible. But if they can't, work together. I mean, one thing the right has going for it is that they're all aligned on an ideology, right? Yeah. And it's it helps that they're all they're mostly these, you know, white people, but mm-hmm. it there is a there's something broader than the individual on the right, right? There's there's something that they're looking towards and there's something they're trying to build. Where on the left, there's not so much of that at the moment. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that the right is also defined by identity politics. There are just more white people in the U.S. <laughs> True, and there's like. <laughs> there's there there are less diverse identities on that side for sure. Yeah, I right. think. I, right. But I I would I, that's, this is a, a part and parcel of the same thing. Like I hate the idea of like identity politics is what's destroying the left. I'm mm-hmm. like, we only call it identity politics because not white people are engaging in it. Right. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. White, white identity politics mm-hmm. is True. politics. Right. Like, that's mm-hmm. what we right. call it. Right. <laughs> that's literally the name mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. Um, maybe they ju- they're just more effective at mobilizing, yeah. and I de- they've been building it for you know, four hundred years, right? <laughs> like once like <laughs> nations started existing, you yeah. know, people were building identity politics. Yeah. Anyway. So one thing to say about this piece, and I mean no disrespect to Frost whatsoever, but pieces like this are frankly a dime a dozen. <laughs> um, oh shit! So um, no disrespect, no disrespect. After after Ta-Nehisi Coates had his piece about Bernie Sanders. Yeah. There was someone mm-hmm. in Yakubin, I want to say it was Cedric Johnson, who wrote a piece that defended the same line of argumentation. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, you know, part of the reason I know this is that I coach, um, I coach debaters. And one of the things that debaters have in their arsenal, along with other, you know, philosophical ideologies, is Marxism. They're mm-hmm. able to read criticisms of capitalism and to attack a position based on its uh, proximity or participation in capitalism, so on and so forth. And one of the the reasons why that's become such a popular argument is that we have this saying, and a bunch of people have kind of said it in different ways, but no matter what the issue, it could be healthcare, it could be education, it could be the military industrial complex, it could be elections, it could be everything. Um, there's some grouchy Marxist chilling <laughs> in a basement who is just writing screed upon screed upon screed, blogging somewhere about it. Uh-huh. And it's just true. Um, <laughs> and this iteration is certainly a timely invocation of that school, but the school is gone around the block. And if I'm honest, I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates has decided like, yes, this is the front I'm going to fight. And he knows he's going to fight it because he knows there's always going to be people who are going to line up and say wrong. So there's been a lot of people from in Yakubin and various other places Mm-hmm. Um, who've lined up against his pieces yeah. come out in um, in the... And they say, the, no, it's about class, it's about right. labor and the work. Right, like, right. And, and there's something kind of tired about it, and I've actually recently read a very good article, and I talked about it with some friends by Nikhil Paksin that's trying to sort of break out of this mold of, mm-hmm. you know, it's class, it's race, it's class, it's race, it's class, it's race. Um, but I think to a certain degree, um, one important thing to take away from this is the difference between a vertical kind of type of um, organizing or, or resistance. And the fact that she mentions unions is very important because it's about developing an institution uh, adjacent to these oppressive institutions to be able to check back, that sort of thing. Versus the kind of horizontal thing, which I think is very much what we see if in, um, if not now, when, 
uh, where you're reaching out and trying to do the more Delizian thing, dare I say. <laughs> Moving along the assemblage and the rhizome and connecting various different <laughs> identities, so on and so forth, that kind of Occupy Wall Street movement. And that's the kind of point of tension that Occupy Wall Street took with the unions, is they're too close to nodes of power and not mm-hmm. the people, so to speak. Yeah, I I agree largely with with both of you. Um, and on on what you've just said, Terrell, I think that would be a very charitable reading. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be a very. So you're saying that was very nice of you, Terrell. It was so, it was so nice. eloquent. Yeah. It was so thoughtful and reflective and critical. Um, this is nice. We really need more to of just this, attach actually. her to this longer thing that <laughs> I kind of called tired and played out. Yeah. Okay, no, we need no, more no, of Sabine no, no, saying nice stuff. Yeah. Oh right, yeah. Oh, I do it so rarely. Everybody, this is a treat for you too, <laughs> listeners. Um, but but it's it's true. Um, as you were saying, Kyle, we can't just put all of our stakes in this this notion of the working class because one, it's not the same as it was in the 1920s, 1930s when the working class was really the only thing that could mobilize any sort of power, yeah. um, right? And there's a reason the Communist Party was shut down so quickly because those relationships of solidarity that were bridging um, uh, race and cla- uh, race and gender lines were was alarming to the to the powers that be, right? But and so it's the problem. I'm not going to say the problem with the left because everybody is saying that right now because everybody wants to get published somewhere else. The left is like millennials. Oh, yeah. The the Millennials are killing the left. (laughs) (laughs) So on the one hand, you have this whole, you know, everybody's obsessed with identity politics. On the other hand, you have these self-proclaimed radical leftists who say, no, 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 we have to bring class back into this. It Mm -hmm. has to be class oriented. Where the issue, the question then is, okay, let's say we succeed. Let's say somehow we as a you know we focus our attention on class distinctions and class warfare and we wage class warfare and we win what happens to sexism what happens to racism do they go away yeah I think Marxists assume, yeah, they're like it's false consciousness, you know, like once right. we have parity, and it's just not. And true. that's just ca- I mean, that's just been not true. There are a number of Marxists who have told me that you know if we get rid of disparities in wealth, exactly. you know, race was always just a tool to like. Yeah. Mystify false consciousness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's just—it's so... it's just not true. Yeah. I mean, these yeah. are issues that are pre-capitalist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These are these very much so. So much they move so. along logics that are not capitalist. I mean, yeah. you exactly. know, in police brutality, who whose bank account rises yeah. Yeah. when mm-hmm. you shoot yeah. an unarmed black man? Yeah. yeah, right. So, so if you've gotten through the two hours with us, oh wait, 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 <laughs> I am going to make us talk about games real quick, though. <laughs> do we feel? Do we just really quick? Do we feel like any of? Do we feel like any of these games are making procedural arguments similar or against Frost's position? Similar to or against Frost's position? The thing I would throw in here is that there's something to be said about the way that Wake Up, I think, posits hope. Mm. Um, And with um, Pivotal, I think there's a question of, well, really, if you were, I think it plays the what-if game or um, as-if game. And if you are in a position of protest, activism, so on and so forth, what matters to you? Mm-hmm. And your choices, I think, demonstrate that in interesting ways. And the sort of iterative process of playing through it maybe a couple of times to see the different endings yeah. demonstrates that to you. Um, and I think that there's something, as we've talked about already, about if not now, when, um, about what it is to actually not have your hands on levers of power, but have your hands on the sort of flows of... Of resistance to a certain degree, you know, yeah. trying to direct yeah. those tides as you will. Yeah. I think it's also important to remember that 
the context in which all of these games take place, one is in medias race, but they're also in very different degrees of authoritarian regimes, right? So in a lot of ways, what Frost is calling on, right, and she's she's making this sort of critique that Arundhati Roy has made before about weekend protesting, right? You can come out to these sanctioned spaces, which will have security personnel, and they'll make sure that you're safe while you're protesting in these designated areas. And the next day you go back to work and nothing has changed, the being able to go out at all is a level of privilege that yeah. people in regimes like the ones in Wake Up don't have access to. So the yeah. question isn't, um, is it working class, is it not? It's what opportunities do we have and are we taking advantage of those opportunities? And are we doing it in the most effective ways that we can be? Yeah. The one thing I would add, um, and maybe in defense of Frost, um, <laughs> In defense of Frost. Wow. Um, Tables of who, kn- who knew you'd be the ally? <laughs> so I went to a conference um, or a sort of seminar, set of seminars this summer, in which there was a professor, pretty pretty clear that he was very much of that sort of new left Marxist inflected. You know, his, his rant was not about identity politics so much as it was postmodernism, hmm. whatever we want to take that to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and his point was that, you know, I think that my teaching is a form of activism, that we can bring mm-hmm. activism into the classroom. And I think that, that that's on face as silly as thinking that by playing these games, we somehow did something to affect capitalism. But I do think that there are points of conversation, modes of analysis, uh, ways of thinking about ourselves. There are ways of theorizing, theorizing about how we play, how we engage with them, and that those can be useful for various um, movements. Yeah, it's the quotidian it's the quotidian resistance, right, of going out to a bar with your colleague after work and talking about issues that are divisive and controversial and taking advantage of those spaces, right? Where you have power or where your power isn't being challenged, right? Resistance doesn't have to come when it's too late. Resistance happens all the time as long as you recognize that it's something that you can do. Yeah. Beautiful. Perfect ending. Thank you so much for uh, sticking around with us. Um, I think we've all earned the end of this podcast. So. <laughs> we put in our time. Yeah, we certainly put in our time. Achievement unlocked. Yeah. <laughs> Sat through two and a half hours two. for wow. broke grad students. <laughs> yeah. So um, thank you guys so much for listening. This was really, I really enjoyed having you here, Sabine. This was fantastic. I think we have to have you back yep. for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you guys would like, if 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 something that we've said has got you thinking and you want to talk to us, of course you can always send us an email at um, scholars that play podcast at gmail But you can also reach out to us on Twitter. Um, Kyle, where can people find you? On I'm Twitter? at e underscore Kyle underscore Romero. And Terrell, like Socrates, baby. Yeah. And Sabine, do you do you? We, I should discuss this with you in not, advance. I'm not on Twitter. No. Okay. All <laughs> don't, right. Don't try to contact if you, me. If you if you have questions for Sabine, <laughs> contact think, one of them. Think about it real hard, <laughs> and then like decide so not to. Yeah, yeah just don't pigeon. don't do that. Yeah, you actually. prefer not to. Find yeah. your own damn answers. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Damn. So God, good. do your own goddamn work. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask Jeez. me. Sabine, are you really not on Twitter? I'm really not on Twitter. Good. Good. I'm really not on Twitter. Stay away from the discourse zone. It's it's so absurd. Twitter so... is not the discourse. Dial it back. There's I mean there's there's some discourse on there. There's well, some there's discourse. discourse. 
or a discourse. Okay. Ain't no discourse. Okay. That's like that me was, level bad. Got, uh, <laughs> I'm, you can find we, me we gotta at, go home, at guys. digital we're, we're, underscore we're Derek. Um, yeah, um, uh, we'll have some more episodes in the future. Uh, oh, okay. I did want to. I did want to say this. Uh, we're, we did this uh, in advance of a talk and play event series at the digital. Oh, the Center for Digital Humanities at Vanderbilt. Um, that's coming up this Thursday. Eventually, these will be, I think, after those events. So we won't get to advertise for them. And this isn't coming out before that event. But um, keep an eye out on the uh, on that on that website for the uh, for the DH Center at Vanderbilt to see when they're coming up and come on out. So thank you so much for listening. I'll see you later. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks Doses. for having me.